Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. In this episode, we're going to look at the recent history of trade deals, cut through the jargon, look at the key principles, and, after all of that, try to get a pretty good understanding of why free trade agreements are so difficult to negotiate. In the beginning, there was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Well, maybe not the beginning of time, but in 1948. It was originally put forward by the United Nations after the end of the Second World War, uh, with a reason to resolve the failure of governments to create something that they were planning called the International Trade Organization, or ITO. So, initially, the GATT, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, was signed up by 23 countries uh, at the end of 1947 and started on the 1st of January 1948. So GATT was originally a forum which created a legal agreement between many countries, um, those initial 23 and others that joined afterwards, um, trying to promote international trade by cutting... Uh, or eliminating trade barriers such as tariffs or quotas. The GATT document, the actual treaty itself, um, says that its purpose is the substantial reduction of tariffs and other trade barriers and the elimination of preferences on a reciprocal and mutually advantageous basis. GATT remained in effect as the only um, international trade agreement until the signature of something called the Uruguay Round Agreements um, by 123 nations in Marrakesh on 14th of April 1994. Now, don't ask why Uruguay Round was signed in Marrakesh. As one goes through the world of World Trade Organization, everything links to some country name or another, not necessarily logically. So the World Trade Organization was established by that agreement in 1994 and it started in January 1995. It's sometimes described as a successor to GATT, but that's not right. Um, Rather, the World Trade Organization is an organization that's been created to manage and further develop General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT, and much of the original GATT text from 1947 is still very much in effect. Basically, then, boilerplate global trade agreement that fixes the rules and tariffs for international trade between what's now 164 member nations. So that's everywhere bar 31 countries. It's exactly what it says, a general agreement. 
it's possible for individual countries to set up their own bilateral or multilateral trade agreements, as we reviewed in episode one. But by definition, the terms have to be better than GATS terms. GATS the default. There's also the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, uh, but we're going to be talking about that in a later episode in this series. For now, we'll stick with tangible goods and agriculture. In addition to the 164 members, there's also 23 observer governments. The latest members are Liberia and Afghanistan. And the observers include uh, arrangements like the European Union. And each EU country is in its own right a member. So who's not a member? Well, there are a few significant countries, Iran, Algeria, Sudan, Belarus, Serbia, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Before you say some of those are insignificant, they're not economically. Almost all of them want to be members, and they're in various stages of adapting their own laws and regulations to comply with World Trade Organization rules. The WTO deals with the regulation of trade between participating countries by providing a framework for negotiating trade agreements and a binding dispute resolution process that is aimed at enforcing adherence to WTO agreements. All of this has been agreed to by member governments, so it sort of cuts through politics. A good example of the rules is that countries aren't allowed to create trade deals for specific industries or agriculture. Two countries can't agree a trade deal that just covers aircraft and defence equipment or, or just wheat and soya beans, for example. They can't cherry-pick. Every country that's a member of WTO has to publish its own schedule of tariffs, and that has to be accepted by every other member country. Uh, The UK doesn't have its own schedule, at least not yet. It uses the common EU schedule. If Brexit goes ahead, it will have to publish its own, and in theory that could be vetoed by any member country, however small. However, I think that risk is minimal, as there have to be some very good reasons that stack up under other WTO rules. GATT has been a success. GATT and WTO have reduced tariffs, um, and the success in cutting them from an average of over 20% in 1947 to around about 5% now is largely attributed to GATT and the World Trade Organization. The WTO has been trying to go further in what's called the Doha Round, which was started in 2001. And the aim of that is to create a multilateral trade agreement between all WTO members. So it's a very ambitious um, objective. The intention was to push the development of emerging economies by cutting out barriers on financial services and removing agricultural subsidies in rich countries. But the whole thing got stalled in 2006 precisely because the farm lobbies in the EU and the US wouldn't agree to it. That was a bit of a downer. In fact, it seemed to paralyse the World Trade Organization for several years. But it's since overcome the hurdles. The Doha round is still theoretically in play. But they have made some new agreements since then. The first big one being the Bali package, agreed by all members in 2013. That was to simplify and streamline custom standards and cut bureaucratic red tape to make international trade easier. And then in 2017, TRIPS amendment, that stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, um, it was signed to secure a legal pathway to 
get affordable remedies under World Trade Organization rules for developing countries when it comes to intellectual property. So, getting back to our free trade agreements, World Trade Organization terms become the default for countries that don't have their own free trade agreements or at least for the countries that are members, which is most of the countries of the world. And when it comes to signing up, most free trade agreements, they're mostly based on the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade GATT standard. Why isn't that just good enough for all countries? Wouldn't it be better if everyone agreed to a global free trade deal? Uh, the dreams of an ideal world. But back to reality. Countries are naturally cautious. They put up barriers to protect their own economies, to keep jobs, protect their farmers and so on. And to ensure they don't become dependent on others for strategic materials and products such as defence. Then, when people or politicians think barriers have fallen too far, you get protests against globalisation. That's inevitably somewhat hypocritical. Every country still wants to sell more to other countries. They just want to restrict imports. Every country wants to grow its economy. Every country has specific other countries that it has special interests in exporting to or importing from. Most commonly, that's because the other country has a big market for something that the exporting country is good at and it thinks it could sell a lot more if the other country got rid of its import duties or cut its bureaucracy or simplified its regulations or all of them. So the countries that want to improve their trade with a better deal than WTO terms start the process of negotiating free trade agreements. Often it's a long and tortuous process. One of the key issues that gets in the way of those agreements is what's known as MFN, Most Favoured Nation Status. That's also a common term in many trade agreements, except in those it's a matter of corporations or customers. Here, we really are talking about nations. What does it mean? Well, basically that the parties to the agreement pledge that they'll never offer better terms of trade to any other country. In practical terms, that means that the participating countries enjoy the lowest tariffs and the fewest barriers to trade. All the most favoured nation partners must be treated equally. It's very desirable, particularly for emerging economies. All the members of the WTO who are relying on its terms, so all those that don't have their own special bilateral or multilateral agreements, enjoy most favoured nation status. So in other words, the tariffs are the same for all countries. So if, for example, the UK leaves the EU, sets a tariff rate of zero for a certain type of good or agriculture, then that 0% rate would apply to imports from every country that's a member of the World Trade Organization, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. However, members of a bilateral or multilateral free trade agreement, even if they're members of the WTO themselves, which they almost always will be, don't have to extend the same benefits to other countries as a matter of course. So it's possible to set up an FTA between two countries with a special low tariff rate, at least lower than the WTO schedule, and in most cases zero, without having to offer the same terms to everybody else. The European Union is by itself by one of its definitions, a huge free trade agreement. Everyone will remember it. it was originally called the common market. If the UK leaves and goes on to WTO terms, then whatever tariff rates the UK sets has to be applied equally to all countries because of most favoured nation rules. So setting zero rate tariffs 
to attempt a level playing field with EU countries would also mean every other country gets to trade with the UK on zero rate terms too. That would quite possibly decimate British agriculture as well as quite a few industries since any other country that's got lower costs could uh, export to Britain and be imported at zero rate too. The other important consideration here is that a country sets its own import tariffs on its WTO schedule. As discussed in episode one, when I explained unilateral trade deals, most countries set tariff barriers high where they need to, to protect their own industries and agriculture. If they set some of the tariffs low, it's typically to help other emerging countries grow their markets by exporting products that don't conflict with its own economy. So, whilst a country is free to reduce its tariffs unilaterally, even to zero, that's to enable imports to flood in. That doesn't do anything to help exports. They'll just hit the import duties that are levied by whichever countries they're exported to. Most favoured nation rules also don't just apply at WTO level. Many, perhaps most, of the existing bilateral and multilateral free trade agreements also include their own most favoured nation clauses. For example, the European Union has a free trade agreement with Canada that includes a most favoured nation clause. That means that the UK can't negotiate a better deal with Canada than it has with the EU, or a better deal with the EU than it has with Canada, without all those countries all getting the same or better, same better terms. There's lots of such free trade agreements with most favoured nation clauses, and the limitations that places on deals is one reason that negotiations typically drag on for years and years. There's one more important consideration of free trade agreements that businesses need to be aware of, which is rules of origin. Basically, when countries drop their tariff barriers to imports from another country, they want to be certain that those goods did actually originate in that other country. They need to be sure there's no risk of that country importing goods from a third country with which it also happens to have a free trade agreement, just adding a sort of Made in X sticker and then re-exporting it to them. Of course, the origin of manufactured goods is not always so easy to define. As we've seen before, taking the example of car manufacturers, a car assembled in Mexico may have a gearbox made in Britain, body panels made in Brazil, an engine made in Canada, and so on. How much of that car is Mexican? Rules of origin define the percentage of value added in the country that exports the end product. And those, in turn, define how it gets treated by an importing country with which it has a free trade agreement. So as you'll understand, then, there's no easy made-to-measure set of rules of origin. Those, too, need to be defined when free trade agreements are negotiated. Every importing country sets its own rules for each class of goods, and then the exporter has to provide a certificate of origin, preferential certificate of origin, which are one specially tailored to meet FTA rules, that can be obtained more easily via a chamber of commerce. If you're in a business that exports, or you plan to export, and you want to take advantage of free trade agreements, you need to know more about rules of origin and those certificates, which you can get the information by contacting us or elsewhere. But now, let's move away from the rules, the organisations and the jargon, 
and look at an entirely different big factor when it comes to negotiating free trade agreements, lobbyists. It'll come as no surprise to any of you that when there are trade deals in the offing, big business spends big on lobbying to get its interests looked after. And that's partly because trade deals don't have to cover every type of industry. Some are going to get top-notch preferential treatment and others are going to be overlooked. In the US, the UK and the EU, the big spenders and the winners almost every time are sectors like defence, cars and pharmaceuticals. Big multinationals in those and in other sectors are inevitably those who benefit most because they've already got international operations that they can adapt and leverage to take advantage of the best trade terms on offer. So, for example, if a multinational household goods company makes the same laundry detergent in many different countries, including ones that are the subject of a free trade agreement negotiation, they'll be interested in an opportunity to import that product from the lower-cost country. We'll meet the objectives of free trade deals in that the economy of the cheaper country will grow, as the detergent factory there will have more work and employ more people. But costs will be cut if they close down the factory or scale back production in the more expensive country. Advantage and disadvantage encapsulated. Recently, I've heard the owners of a number of small and medium-sized businesses talk about their dreams of increased business when free trade deals are struck. Some have been interviewed on the TV news. Perhaps you've seen them. Potentially, the opportunities are true. Probably only if those businesses are either in the same sector as a big lobbyist or part of their supply chain. There's at least as much risk that they'll suffer from cheaper imports from the other country. It's not just industry where lobbyists are active. Farm and fishing lobbies are extremely powerful. And when the trade deal is being negotiated with a country where agriculture gets government support, even if they get their own, they'll be shouting especially loudly. Agricultural lobbies are so powerful, in fact, that that's what sunk the Doha agreement that I was talking about earlier. And if the other country has especially cheap labour-intensive industry, you can expect trade unions to be shouting too. Of course, they're a lot less powerful than they were in the past. Something new and strengthening is the environmental lobby. As of yet, perhaps it doesn't have the money and the clout of big business, but it looks like its day will come very soon indeed. Finally, before leaving this episode, let's consider what creates the appetite in governments to pursue these deals. Remember, every country or bloc that's a member of World Trade Organization can rely on its terms and agreed tariffs. So there's nothing really to stop international trade. It's just that there'd be much more of it, both imports and exports, if there weren't such high taxes and duties, and if regulations, the red tape and the bureaucracy could be made to disappear. Negotiating a free trade agreement, as I keep saying, takes years of patient negotiation, and there's only any point both sides can really see great opportunities. Each country is looking for which other countries represent a much bigger potential market for products that it's good at producing, or where it's forced to import a lot of expensive products that it cannot produce in its own country, or at least can't produce economically. 
So if a country has a big aircraft industry, there's no real incentive for it to negotiate a free trade agreement for aircraft with another country that's unlikely to buy more than one or two planes a decade. Every country or bloc really wants free trade agreements with other big market economies and has less interest in others unless they produce something they really need. Logically, that also answers the question, with many countries clamouring for trade deals with another, who gets priority in the queue? Inevitably, each country's priorities are those countries which are its biggest potential markets. It's not just a case of America first or Britain first. It's every country for itself. The priority level is unlikely ever to be reciprocated. The UK, for example, looking at all the countries it will want to trade deal with, is bound to prioritise the USA as the biggest market on Earth. But will the USA feel the same? In fact, the USA is likely to rate bigger markets, such as the EU or China, ahead of the UK. To get them to the negotiating table and to get priority, the weaker country inevitably has to offer some early concessions, typically in the form of agreeing to remove import tariffs or regulations on some of the other countries' exports. So... To wrap up, at the end of the day, how effective are trade deals? What lessons can be learned from the ones that have been negotiated and been in place for at least a few years now? That's what we're going to look at in the next episode, episode three, when we're going to examine a number of trade deals and see how they've worked in practice, the good and the bad. From that, it's useful to learn what to expect and how much optimism and pessimism to place in looking at future trade deals. Thank you for listening. I hope you're finding this series interesting and better still thought-provoking. Please do send me your thoughts, questions and comments. forward to hearing from you and talking to you again in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week, so please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm-hmm.